0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes.
1: If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school run by the major literary and talent agency.
0: Since launching in 2011, over 190 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including critically acclaimed authors Bonnie Garmus, Julia Armfield, Stacey Thomas and Alex Hay.
1: CBC ran a variety of online writing courses designed to help you no matter what your current skill level is. If you're looking to get your novel off the ground, you might want to try the six-week online Starting to Write Your Novel course, led by author and founder of CBC, Anna Davis, or you can join a six-week course focused on a specific genre. Available courses include historical fiction, science fiction, psychological thrillers, crime, romance, YA and children's fiction.
0: All online students are given opportunity to get feedback from one of CBC's expert editors.
1: If you're ready to learn new writing skills with an online course, there is an exclusive discount for Always sick Notes listeners. Use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of starting to write your novel or any other four-, five-, or six-week online course. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to James Daunt, managing director of Waterstones and CEO of Barnes and Noble.
0: We spoke to James about setting up his own independent bookstore in the nineteen nineties, about being bought in to save Waterstones two decades later, and about taking on the top role at Barnes and Noble as well.
1: It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it.
0: James, welcome to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, we wanted to start off with the uh, thorny question of the optimal angle of shelving uh, in bookshops. We saw this, this came up in a, a piece the New York Times wrote about you, and that you had a, a week of dispute about whether it should be three degrees or, or four degrees. We wonder if you could unpack for our listeners precisely what that difference entails, but also maybe in a, in a broader sense, why that was something that was so significant for you.
2: I, I think it was probably sort of uh, embellished somewhat, but I had a great friend called Miguel Sal who was um, based in Italy. I think he was actually Argentinian by um, by origin, sort of wonderful um, designer, um, and who did sort of all sorts of very elevated design work for people like, you know, like Ducati showrooms and, and other sort of high-end Italian type things, uh, but was also obsessed with bookshops. Um, and we we did a, a number of sort of two-handers, uh, uh, just explaining really around uh, sort of the visual merchandising principles and how one should engage with book selling uh, to a school for booksellers which exists in Italy. Um, so one of the one of the sort of nice perks of the jobs is is to uh, talk about and teach bookselling, selling. Um, and then, when I started to really open up new shops at Waterstones in a, in a serious way, uh, we 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 debated at, at considerable length, sort of actually, how do you best present books in a bookshop? You need an angle on on the uh, shelving just to allow light, to obviously, to fall on the books, but also to stop them falling on your toes. Um, and then it becomes sort of quite heated if you are uh, passionate about such small things as to whether the angle should be consistent or whether it should increase as you go sort of down the shelving unit uh, to present the lower shelves that are, that are a more acute or a, a wider angle so that they point up at you and so on and and in fact you know I I think at the end of the day um, every bookseller should you know really, Want to and be deliberate about how they design their bookshops. Um, I've had the the lucky advantage of both doing it in my own shops, but but uh, subsequently at Waterstones and and now at Barnes and Noble, um, and and therefore I can tell you um, empirically that uh, most bookshops that have been opened at the moment uh, have an angle of about three degrees and that works very nicely.
1: You're victorious. In general, could you give us a sort of description of the platonic ideal of the bookshop, sort of visually as you see it beyond the bookshelves as well?
2: Every bookshop should, as far as it's able, be distinctive and have its own personality and of course is adapting to the physical space that it occupies. And uh, bookselling is notoriously tight margin business um, and therefore we tend to occupy peculiar spaces because frankly, they're cheaper. Um, that, that the standard square box will have an H&M or a Zara in or somebody who could, who could pay the top whack uh, and will be in the peculiar one. And we tend to, when we're sort of taking shops, we find ourselves sort of competing with people like sort of shoe retailers because they also can occupy uh, strange places, but but we really can. Um, and therefore, each shop is not just about presenting books nicely and, and attractively, but also adapting itself to the the, the physical architecture of the space, which in our case will tend to have lots of pillars in it and lots of compromises because that gives us a, a, a lower rent. I, I also think happily it also allows us to create quite intimate spaces. Um, and at the end of the day, that's probably the most important thing about a bookshop is that it has to be warm and inviting. Uh, they are social spaces, but they're also quite intimate spaces. And how do you achieve that? And how do you achieve the balance between the, the different parts of the shop um, to allow a flow of people and different age groups we cater obviously to everybody uh, for young and old and all in between. How do you give each of those groups of people their own spaces that that work for them? A teenager wants a very different space to, you know the, the, the young 30 year olds um, who are meeting. so, A bookshop has to identify and and adapt itself to each of of its customer groups.
0: Could we roll back now in your own life and and your career? So you read history at university and then you worked in the US for JP Morgan. How did you end up doing that? And then how did you and why did you decide that you then wanted to take a very different direction?
2: To be honest, um, I, I was a fairly lackadaisical student. I mean, I loved what I was doing and reading, but I hadn't thought that I was ever going to leave university. So it was a somewhat rude shock at the end of three years to be turfed out um, and also obviously needed to work and in, a, in an overprivileged way that sort of Oxbridge does you know there's a career service you can go to and somebody says you know there are these jobs and those jobs and what are you thinking of I wasn't thinking much at all um, but there were banking jobs in in New York and giving one the chance to travel and uh, and obviously they were then as now, sort of ridiculously well paid. So unimaginatively and for no better reason than it sort of sounded fun, I, I went to work for a bank. I didn't do it for, for very long. Um, I, whilst I liked the job and it is hugely stimulating, it's, it's also all about money, which is sort of not quite what I sort of felt I wanted to spend my life thinking about and talking about um, and left them. Took me a little while, but that um, in the end decided that if I wasn't going to be working in an office, then then I had to do something I enjoyed, and the thing I enjoyed um, uh, was reading. Um, so I opened a bookshop.
1: Is it right as well that your wife was part of the decision to to quit banking?
2: Yeah, she didn't approve of of the banking and all that came with it at all, and thought it was incredibly boring and not 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 really what I ought to be doing. Um, and uh, yes, I mean we were then, you know. Obviously sort of barely, barely, uh, barely left university, so student, uh, sort of boyfriend, girlfriend, but happily we're still together.
0: Could you tell us about the mechanics of opening the first Daunt books in 1990, how you actually went about that, that process, um, finding a uh, location and then with the financing? And we saw that you got some support from something called the Businesses uh, Expansion Scheme that doesn't exist anymore. But just, t- just tell us how, how that went about right at the beginning.
2: Obviously, because I was young, I, I think I left um, uh, my first job when I was 24 years old, and, and, and as I say, it took a couple of years, so 26 when I opened uh, Dot Books, uh, the bookshop. I needed money. There was something called the business expansion scheme, as you said, which gave... Um, a tax break effectively you could deduct what you invested I think in, into a business expansion scheme um, from your your taxes um and that incentive I, I very successfully sort of encouraged um, individuals to put money into uh, entrepreneurial businesses um it certainly worked for my face I you know wrote a in you know, a very ordinary prospectus I think you know I want to open up a bookshop and there were uh plenty of portals in which people like me could say you know I'm, I'm young and keen and do you want to put some money into me um and a whole group of people did so and and that gave me the capital to open up a bookshop unfortunately bookshops are quite expensive to open um you've got to buy an awful lot of books to put on the shelves apart from anything else um and i was very lucky to find this beautiful shop in in Marvin high street um and uh, which had been an antiquarian bookshop. It was the first, uh, indeed only, purpose-built bookshop in the country. Um, and that gave me a, a wonderful place in which to to start.
1: And What was the Daunt Books sort of USP from the start? Um, was there a particular sort of decor, sort of mood that you wanted to evoke? How did you go about arranging the books that you'd bought? Could you kind of walk, walk us through that whole sort of initial setup and, and the decisions you made there?
2: I felt that if I was going to have a, an independent bookshop, it ought to try and do something that was distinctive and different to um, then the sort of relatively sort of limited number of chains. But we had Waterstones and Dillons and, and a lot of uh, people that, that no longer exist. And and they were all arranged exactly the same as most bookshops are today. Um, conventional subric categories, fiction, history, and so on. I, in fact, arrange Dawn books and continue to arrange Dawn books by country, uh, which is how I read, and that um, puts novels, histories, anything um, into country sections uh, that they're about, the novel where it's set, rather than where the author comes from, the history where it's about, and so on. It mixes books up, I think, in a a very interesting way. It's certainly, as I say, how I read, and therefore arranging a bookshop in that way seemed uh, worth trying, Um, and it is and it's distinctive and it allows you to, to present books in a, in a very different way um and happily you know, customers have, have enjoyed it and continue to enjoy it
0: and how long did it take before it was a, a going concern as it were in terms of that you were you were making a profit or that you were in a position where you could pay yourself were there was it relatively smooth sailing in the early years or were there particular moments of challenge
2: um it was fairly disastrous um Initially, um, I opened in 1990, having sort of taken a lease at the top of the property market in in 89. Mm. um, There was a nasty sort of retail recession, which sort of kicked off more or less as I opened my doors. Most of my neighbours closed on Maribyrn High Street. Um, For those who haven't been there, Maribyrn High Street is a very shishi and prosperous um, uh, shopping street now. Then um, when I opened, it, it was also, but by within six months, everything had closed just about. I think we in Boots and, and a newsagent were literally the only retailers that survived that period, and I was sort of, I always sort of felt gripped by a sense of panic whenever I had a queue in in, in the shop in the early days, because it probably meant the bailiffs were in the shop, because otherwise I wasn't, wasn't going to have a queue. Um, so no, it was it was difficult to begin with.
1: What were some of the lessons you learned from from that recession that you've kind of taken on through the rest of your career?
2: If you're going to get through tough times um you hopefully you get a bit of luck and and i definitely had that but but probably it's mainly going to be about sweat and application sheer hard work um and that's what got us through um you know working all the hours that god gives as you saying sort of not not paying yourself anything and and just toughing it out um and that sort of grit and determination um is is a lesson that's worth learning. It's not a pleasant lesson. Um, as it happened, you know, I was then to find myself at Waterstones in very difficult circumstances, and then Barnes & Noble are very different, difficult circumstances. And I think having sort of been through dark times and knowing that if you just concentrate and stick to the knitting and do it properly you can come out the other end was probably helpful.
0: You've talked a lot elsewhere about the importance of having good staff particularly staff who've stayed with you for a long time and um, how did you go about recruiting people and how did you get them to stay for you know years and in some cases decades?
2: I think you attract like-minded people um, and that's no more complicated than interviewing properly and carefully and recruiting people who you like um, and who you think uh, you're going to want work alongside, which obviously in a small bookshop is, is very much the case. But I think that principle applies however large the business is. And then you have to pay properly, um, have a very nice culture, a, a supportive and enjoyable culture. And if you've got those things, people will stay with you. Um, and it for sure, a bookshop is, is hugely dependent on the calibre and motivations and, and and the spirit that individual booksellers and collectively booksellers bring to their shop.
1: And then how did you go about expanding from that first shop? How soon after the sort of recession years were you able to move into Hampstead, Holland Park, um, other kind of very affluent areas of London? Was that a deliberate decision as well to set up shop there?
2: The expansion was sort of more accidental than deliberate. Um, it's and as we began to sort of succeed, um, we could recruit more people, so the team got, at Maribyrn High Street got larger, and and then individuals within it wanted their own shop. Um, you know, if you if you, High Street was sort of pretty much my shop, um, uh, and if you wanted to do your own thing, then you you needed to, to to have your own, and and so it was a sort of organic and and fairly natural growth for us, and as much about allowing us to give opportunity to, to a team which if you're just one shop is is a bit more limited. and and the early ones, you know we went up to Belssuss Park and then Hampstead and Holland Park as you say, and they they were all very successful. and and that's sort of carried on not not dramatically, but you know every few years you know, somebody says, oh you know I'm moving out of London and you know, I think we should have a shop in X or Y. And so we've've we've, we've gone outside London as well. Um, which is, is just gives more opportunity and it allows people to move around and, and uh, frankly, ambitions to be met.
0: And during that time that you were building uh, yourself up as an independent bookseller, what was your perception of the big corporate chains? And then moving from that, how, how did you end up working, taking the Waterstones job? I think my perception was sort of one of sort
2: of broad indifference, um, They were there, sort of a bit like I feel about Amazon. It's there, it sells lots and lots of books. It does something sort of rather different to what I do. Um, I didn't sort of particularly mind them, but but equally I felt they were very, very different to anything that I could identify with or or relate to. Then that became sort of slightly more complicated when they got into trouble and borders went bankrupt. Dylans and Otakers and things all sort of merged into Waterstones and then um, sort of by 2009-ish, one, one, one only had Waterstones there. Um, there was a few independence foils, Blackwells, and so on, but, but really it, the trade depended on Waterstones and Waterstones was a very, very sick um, animal by then, less of a, of a attractive bookseller, but, but also that was what the physical bookselling trade was sort of rooted on because they had so many shops everywhere and there was nobody else. And, and then I became very, very much more interested in them because I felt that their survival was actually essential for my own survival because I needed warehouses and publishers and people focused on the physical book trade because, you know, I lived off the crumbs of that infrastructure. And if that infrastructure was all based on wood, I, I needed to be interested in what was going on at Woodstein's.
1: So when you approached for the job, it was a case of, immediately appealing as something that you wanted to do to help fix a sick animal as you put it or was there ever a kind of a moment where you thought this was a a very sort of daunting pardon the pun challenge
2: I mean I was sort of arrogant enough to believe that the the principles of good book selling are fairly universal um as I said I did quite a lot of teaching of bookselling, um, yeah, Miguel Sal and, and the Italian bookseller school was something that predated uh, uh, my, my involvement with Waterstones. So I sort of knew about bookselling, I was very interested in bookselling. And I also thought that if you applied that to Waterstones, they, there was absolutely no need for them to go bust. It was ridiculous. They had all these wonderful shops up and down the land. Um, and also it would just be really sad uh, not to have bookshops in many towns where you know clearly it was going to be highly unlikely that anyone would ever put a big bookshop into Middlesbrough or Grimsby or or wherever it might be up and down the land you know Tunbridge Wells was going to be fine but not those kind of places Um, uh, so I, I think I sort of went into it sort of with a with a sort of fair determination to to wrench them around, uh, knowing also that it was going to be quite difficult.
0: And in terms of the factors that had imperiled Waterstones and had killed these other chains, to what extent was it Amazon? To what extent was it the e-book? Could you unpack, you know, looking back a decade or so, what was the the perfect storm that had made things so difficult? I think what had happened was, was certainly Amazon, which um, was hugely
2: effective and... and just gobbling up market share with every passing year. Um, the, the e-books really hadn't at that point taken off. They were a very minor thing. At, at, in 2010, they were launched, but the it was only the earliest uh, version of Kindle. And, and people were sort of wringing their hands and saying, oh my goodness, maybe this could become as much as sort of five or 6% of the market. So there was no idea that it was going to explode in the way that it did. Um, but nonetheless, Amazon itself had undermined um, or or, or had denied these chains the ability to prosper um, whilst being as bad and inefficient and frankly useless as they were. And once it became sort of really difficult for them, uh, they had no efficient model and bookselling is notoriously um, unprofitable as, so there was was no fat there to keep and sustain them. Um, And they went one by one. Each time one of them went bust, you know, the survivors could sort of feel um, better about themselves and slightly more profitable as they sort of cannibalised what was going on. But when there was nobody else, Waterstones was in big, big trouble and was just sort of simply going bust.
1: So when you uh, came into Waterstones, what was your first sort of port of call? Um, was it this sort of decentralisation um, that you've mentioned, making making each shop its own sort of individual entity, but within the broader group?
2: Yes, it was simply to say, uh, articulate that if we ran each shop, if the individual booksellers and teams within each shop really addressed themselves to their bookshop and tried to turn them into a good bookshop, they would have much higher sales. Um, And I knew just from going around the shops that the booksellers in the shops knew that as well. They just had structures around them which prevented them from running sensible, um shop. so it, it it really was no more complicated than articulating that but then also going to the publishers and explaining that we were no longer going to be um fulfilling all of the deals that were then in place to uh, effectively sell the space in shops and that that had to end and you know at the end of the day we we controlled our own shops um and therefore it happened um happily pretty quickly sales started turning around um and in particular we got rid of all of the structures which were in place to impose uniformity on the bookshops uh, and that was an awful lot of people and cost and so you know that the head office dramatically shrank and all the costs attached to that and that gave us a, a, a bit of breathing room uh, and allowed us to um what frankly survived what then became a, a rather terrible storm when Kindle uh, and Kindle Paperwhite really took off. But but we just done it in time and and we managed to get through it.
0: We wanted to come back to to Kindle and also to this habit of of selling space that you got rid of. But a question from um, me, just reversing slightly, was that. At the time that you came in, uh, Waterstones was owned by this, this wealthy Russian, Alexander Mammut. Um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion in, since what happened in Ukraine of the role of uh, wealthy Russians getting involved in British sporting and cultural properties. Um, we had a look. He's not on the sanctions list, as far as we can, we can tell. But what's your thoughts about what that was like at the time and then you know, with the perspective of zooming on 13 years or so and uh, you know, everything that's happened since then? Well, I think uh, Alexander Mamut is
2: uh, is a sort of entrepreneur. He wasn't in the, in the, the oligarch sense of being one of the people who sort of got huge natural resources or, or sort of um, that 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 we sort of typically think of as, as these rich Russians. Um, but he was very anglophile um, and uh, very literary and very interested in bookshops and, and publishing. Um, so for him, I think it was clearly a business uh, decision um, he felt that you know, it was ridiculous that no bookshops could survive in the united kingdom and as effectively the bankruptcy of, of Waterston, seemed to suggest and at the same time he had a sort of a great empathy for bookshops and bookselling um so he was a, a sort of a, a, an ideal owner um i think he probably perceived the the money involved as being relatively modest. Uh, it's very, very helpful if you're trying to turn around a business to have a, a single owner who shares the philosophy behind it. Um, and he was brave and put the money in there, which you know otherwise um, there was no way that, for example, private equity or somebody was going to at that stage. Um, so I think it was highly fortuitous. Do I think it's sort of right and proper that you know individual entrepreneurs should? take these sort of very risky bets where no one else would yes if it saves jobs and uh, and particularly if it allows bookshops to survive uh, we were extremely lucky
1: could we return to then that that point about co-op fees could you explain for any since who don't know what that is what that involves and why it had such a sort of saltifying effect on on what you could do in the shops
2: sort of co-op and, and promo fees are very much an established part of general retail um you, when you walk into a supermarket, and and all the Kellogg's cornflakes are in, or uh, occupying a certain amount of space, you know that will be because Kellogg's are paying for them to be there, and uh, and and the Head and Shoulders shampoo, likewise, Procter and Gamble, whoever it is you make that, will be paying some money for it to be there, um, and bookshops worked exactly the same, just another uh, branch of retail, run the same as most other retailers, and that was predicated on selling the space. Publishers pay to have John Grisham. On you know on the bestseller list at number three and on the front table um, in every single store, uh, those sort of things like selling your bestseller uh, spaces become self fulfilling. So it's sort of kind of not cheating anyone. Um, it still goes on. Um, W.H. Smith operates on that basis. The supermarkets, when you walk in and find their books, they operate on that basis. Um, Over here in the United States, it was how Barnes & Noble was doing it at the point I arrived, and other book retailers do. Um, You don't find books wrapped up in airports, for example, um, because the individual shop manager thinks it's a great book. They're there because the publishers think they're going to sell, and they are the best sellers, and they're paying for the books to be there. So it's a very well-established retail Model. The trouble for booksellers is that we have so many uh, books being published all the time, and across the country, very um, disparate types of of customer bases with individual interests. And of course, the booksellers themselves having their own interests. And a, a bookseller who's interested in a book will sell many more of it than than if it's just something that's on a list. So we we needed to get rid of it to bring proper sort of curation into our stores, proper engagement from the booksellers. It also happens with books to be extraordinarily inefficient because there's such a tidal wave of constant publishing that's going on that if you pile up um, these uh, publisher dictated books, they're probably going to have it wrong in most places most of the time. And indeed, that was the case. So the way the book trade works is all the books you haven't sold, uh, you send back what we call returns and returns at a standard bookshop chain, Autistons, before I joined, Barnes & Noble, before I joined, would run at about 25% of sales. That's probably more like 75% of new books that come in uh, get piled up and sent back. So it's a huge amount of labor involved in that. Um, It is a consequence of which actually most of your shop is all the books being piled up that your customers don't want to buy rather than the ones they do. Um, And actually, if you stop all of that and you just let the booksellers put whichever books they want on the tables reorder whatever they want to all of those returns disappear all the labor attached with it all the costs I and mean, if you just think about the sheer freight costs transport costs in and out um and you sell many more books so although you've given up an awful lot of money because you no longer get those co-op fees and it was 27 million i think a year when i joined at waterstons and about 120 30 million a year at Barnes & Noble, so big, big, big amounts of money, actually more money than the business as a whole made. Um, You give up that, but suddenly your costs drop, you sell much more and if you're running good bookshops, you end up making more money.
0: What was that discussion with the publishers like when you turned around to them and said that this, as you say, very established practice was not going to be happening anymore? We read that it was months of negotiation.
2: Well, it wasn't so much negotiation as that We obviously have where we we operate within a a book industry and the publishers are sort of key partners to us. So you can't unilaterally do things because everything has to adjust. And it wasn't so much negotiation. It was like, how do we adjust our way out of this? Because you printed books, for example, on the basis of how we're taking them in. And if we're going to transition out of this, how are we going to do that in with causing as least pain uh, throughout to authors, to you, to the whole sort of infrastructure that's there. And I think there was a certain amount of sort of hand-ringing. I think every publisher would really would have liked us to stop doing it with every other publisher but them, Um, and that, that, that they would have all agreed would have been the ideal outcome. But at the end of the day, I was sort of like to them, which is like, has anybody got a better idea? And if it all works, we're going to sell an awful lot more books. And if it doesn't work, we're not going to be any worse off because we're just going bust and we're going bust anyway. So I think there wasn't much resistance. There was just a lot of concern.
1: We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
0: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pictures. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes.
1: In terms of Waterstone's own role as a tastemaker, particularly its book of the month, how does that work? Who is the sort of panel of experts who's choosing that? And do you get lobbied for it um, from publishers?
2: We certainly get lobbied. Um, we do, uh, but but the lobbying is you know, here's an advanced copy, please read it. Um, we think it's wonderful. Obviously, every editor in the land thinks their book is the best. You know, every parent thinks their child is the most beautiful. Um, so we have the books come in, we spend our life reading them, um, and we try and make good choices. Um, a lot of advanced copies go out into the shops. Um, over time, one learns who's got really good taste. Um, and we've got a lot of you know, very experienced booksellers who read very eclectically. Um, I think we generally make pretty good choices. It's never, a, there's never so much as one pound attached to those um, choices. It is simply, we think we can sell a lot of the book. We think customers will enjoy it. We think there's a, a a coherence in how we're choosing books. And and in fact, we're not doing anything different to what used to happen um, with the huge popularity uh, when I was first around of of the book clubs, Richard and Judy and all of those things. They were just choosing good books. Um, Those have dropped away in their popularity. They haven't disappeared, but they've dropped in popularity. And I think uh, our own choices, which act in the same way, which is just to put a spotlight on books and say, these are really good, and if you're doing it consistently, then your customers learn to uh, trust those choices and and it becomes a self-fulfilling um, thing. And and boy, we've made some wonderful choices um, you know, all the time, actually.
0: I was interested to read as well that you also uh, sometimes provide feedback to the publishers. And the example that, that uh, I saw was changing the colour of the serpent on the Essex serpent to have a different colour during the winter. Could you explain... Both that particular case and then more broadly how some of that providing feedback works. What well, covers matter hugely, uh, lots and lots
2: of readers do judge a book by its cover. Um, and a lot of our job is around creating as attractively presented uh, bookshops as we can, which is to attractively present books, which is a lot easier if the, if the book itself is beautiful. Um, publishers are invest enormously, and actually in the UK. Um, I think particularly effectively in the physical attributes of their books, and that's now become, you know, spray edges and foil effects, and goodness knows what else, as 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 well as just the the cover itself. Uh, in the case of the Essex Serpent, you think that might have actually come from the publisher rather than from us. But they, we, it was a book that we absolutely loved. Um, Sarah Perry, if anyone hasn't read it read it it's it's a gloriously um, inventive and, and tremendously good novel and they published it with a very sort of summery look and then in the winter they turned it blue um and it just gave it a different look and you know, with the seasons you do naturally change what your bookshop looks like uh, we we flow if you walk into our shops now it's may we're getting really into the swing of summer it'll it it will have a very summery feel about it we're all thinking about summer holidays and trying to sell you as big a pile of books for you to read then as we can uh, by the time you come into winter you you start moving more slightly darker um and that was a very clever publisher who was just going with that flow
1: We've obviously talked a lot about the importance of human curation and, and the human side of, of book selling, but how do um, your companies use data to inform what you're doing in the shops?
2: Almost not at all. We used to have immense amounts of data and I hope none of my board, because I unfortunately report now to a board, going <laughs> listen to your podcast because I think I pretend I look at data, but I don't all of the things that existed, things like four counters and the like uh, have gone. Uh, the one thing that we do do is we run loyalty programs um, and we we try to understand who particular customers are from what they're buying, um, but not in, a, in too crude a way. We don't say, well, you read fiction, therefore you know, we're, we're going to recommend fiction to you. But we try and identify what are the, types of books that if you buy, it's likely that you're this sort of a reader. And then we send you emails about those sort of books. If if you've read The Essex Serpent, we kind of know what sort of a reader you are. Um, And then we will put in front of you sort of good literary novels with strong plot lines and the like. Um, If you're reading Colleen Hoover, we'll send you something very, very different. Um, And stimulated the history and so on so we do use data in that sense but i think that's really just to bring what comes naturally and intuitively on the shop floor what every bookseller is doing every minute of the time that they're serving customers to email and, and online curation um so it's sort of data but it's really about just un- interpreting um the, the books that people are buying and therefore using that to recommend other good books to them
0: We touched on ebooks earlier, uh, but could we return to this moment you mentioned when Kindle really got a critical mass and and Kindle Paperwhite and so forth? Just explain maybe for people who don't know as much about what was going on at that particular moment. uh, And then from that, how have things changed since and and how did you respond to what was going on?
2: um, uh, Amazon brought out the Kindle Paperwhite in 2012-13 and it was... Embraced with huge enthusiasm, and newspapers were full of it. TV reporting full of it, and and uh, every other article. It seemed to be uh, sort of about the death of the book, um, and and there was a sort of sense that there was an inevitable transition that was going on from uh, physical books and paper to to the ebook. Um, and, and indeed, of course, that was evident in music, where you know vinyl had disappeared, CD was being and disappearing to, to streaming services and Apple Music and, and all the rest. So it seems sort of intuitive uh, and natural that the way uh, the physical media in, in music uh, and indeed in film uh, was transitioning, that book was also going that way. And it was dramatic success uh, within the sales. Um, big, big market uh, share shifts are on to E. Um, and it was all pretty um, scary, <laughs> if truth be told. Um, at Waterston's, we were very early on in the turnaround. So it started at a difficult point of losing money and, and heading for bankruptcy. And then this sort of tidal wave of transition to E came along. Um, my response to that was that, at one, I never for one second believed it. Uh, I never for one second thought that more than a relatively small a minority of people would actually want to read ebooks as their main way of reading because the pleasures of a physical book are so obvious. Um, but we we did need to sort of engage with it. And and the way which we did so was actually to start selling Kindles. Um, and that caused a, a, a certain amount of um, horror, I think, in in people who wanted Waterstones to survive and felt we were simply, you know. Hastening our own demise. Uh, but what I wanted to do was say to people who were interested in Kindle, who were embraced being the hype of, of it, was like, still come into our bookshops. You know, bookshops are wonderful places to find books and discover books. Bring your Kindle in, buy your Kindle here. You know, by all means, sort of browse our books and then download the ebook, but come into our shops and the bet was that if they were doing that actually pretty soon they'd get tired of the kindle it would end up in a bottom drawer and not be opened and brought out again and we'd be selling them books um and that indeed was pretty much how it went
1: i'm afraid that's the fate that my kindle met as well um it's the rule of the show that we always talk about money um you mentioned the importance of paying your staff good wages in terms of retention um there was a, at one point a petition from employees about pay how much are your books are paid now maybe in london versus elsewhere and how have you managed to sort of address that that complaint
2: i think that the debate and it's a very difficult one um is assuming that that the amount of money that you have for pay is a is a fixed amount so it's it's then the, the debate is then how do you allocate that amount and how much do you use that money to raise your base your entry level pay and how much should you uh, be investing or giving a rewarding in in the levels that we have um, above the entry level um i.e how much do you give to the career booksellers the people who are, are working in it against the the people who have just started or are working temporary you know, through part-time or over for example at christmas we hire lots of of part-time people so the the complaint and and indeed the petition is for the that we should be doing more at the entry level and I've always answered that I completely agree with that but I have to be able to look the people in the eye who work for me for a year two years three years and more and say I'm paying you enough because in order to pay more at the entry I have to take away money from people who are building careers with me. Um, and the answer is, I don't think we pay them enough. And uh, our primary obligation as, as an employer is to put more money into those promotional ladders, because you know, frankly, it's booksellers, experienced booksellers, people who are building their careers in bookselling, upon whom uh, the, the quality and excellence of the bookshop depends. So that's the, the debate that we've been locked in. I think that as a business, as we do better, then we should definitely be investing um, in our people. Um, and it's the success with which we do that which will determine the success of the business as a whole. Um, and again, i am now started that journey at, at Barnes & Noble where, you know, as at Waterstones, you inherit a business which is dominated by people on the single starting wage, dominated by part-time workers very very few people who are staying in the business almost no promotional structures you just have a manager a system manager and that's about it but then put in all of the layers which allow people to stay and and build careers and and do so working full-time if you can have a full-time bookseller you can learn obviously much quicker and more effectively than if you're only working um, a, a small number of days a week so that's what i've feel that we've actually that's been key to turning around Waterstones and is now key to turning around Barnes and Noble. It's putting in a structure which allows you to retain booksellers.
0: And then how did this move from Waterstones to Barnes Noble come about? And what were your thoughts about taking that or making that move when it first became apparent that you could?
2: Well sort of oddly enough it was the same dynamic going on, which was we were doing very well at Waterstones. Um we'd turn the business around and sales going up and opening more shops and and generally doing really well. Um, But then, and and having no regard, you know, frankly, to the United States. Um, And then sort of slowly it dawning upon us that Vance & Noble was the same as Watterson's had been. It's the sole surviving large major physical book retailer in the United States. And it was in big, big trouble. And then we, within our world, we have... um, these international publishers who dominate it. Um, they are owned mainly by Europeans, um, Rupert Murdoch owns Collins, but otherwise it's Agadir and um, Bertelsmann, who anyway, own Pegram Ranham House, and, and uh, Macmillan is also a, a German owned uh, firm. Uh, but they're all headquartered in uh, New York, um, and the US book market is identical pretty much to the UK one same books published, same authors, same bestsellers. Um, Uh, and therefore actually it is the U.S. market which sort of dominates the Anglo-Saxon publishing world. And then this realisation that if the physical bookshop failed in the United States, it's probable that the whole structure of the trade uh, would adjust without a physical bookselling part to it. And whatever happened in the United States is probably inevitably going to come to the U.K. And if we wanted to keep physical bookshops at the forefront of publishing on both sides of the Atlantic, we needed a strong Barnes & Noble. And that led to, to uh, when Barnes & Noble sort of finally sort of really hit the skids, um, uh, taking over while well, buying it and, and, and taking over
1: here. You mentioned some of the similarities, but I wondered if there were any particular or notable differences between American book selling and corporate culture there um, and in the UK? I mean, it's a big old country,
2: (laughs) the shops are are very large, but no, um, I think Barnes & Noble was running itself very much like Waterstones was running itself very centralized, very corporatized based on co-op and promo and uh, driving this sort of notion that you needed consistency in your stores and investing huge amounts of effort to have every store be the same. Um, which is, after all, how most retailers work. You, know, you expect if you walk into Zara to get consistency. You don't want the wild west going on. Uh, whereas with bookshops, you really do. So it was just bringing that same principle there. Um, shops are bigger, but they uh, uh, so so are the the markets that they uh, address. The books, as I say, are the same. The principles are definitely the same. And to be honest, I haven't found much really, that's, that's different between the two. There are some sort of edges around the culture and uh, uh, that, that are different, um, but I don't think the the moves that we're making, and it is really about changing culture, I don't think those are any different at all. And I don't think the tribe that is the book-selling tribe is any different over here to, uh, I speak from New York now, uh, any different over here to, to the United Kingdom.
0: You mentioned earlier you, uh, you have a board to report to now which you used not to. What has that transition from being your own master to working within a larger corporate structure been like
2: surprisingly unchanged um i think we we know what we're doing we we stick to the core principles of how do you encourage better book selling in your shops not get too overexcited about failure because if you allow um a, a, autonomy and increasing amounts of autonomy to bookshops, some will get very much better, but also some will get very much worse. So it is that uh, tolerating uh, the divergence of, of, of execution. Uh, to be honest, if you're reporting to a active and and attentive board um, who are primarily really want to know whether you're making more money rather than less money, and if you are prospering, then, then they're pretty happy and supportive. And in fact, this board was very, very supportive and took some big risks. When when we were hit by COVID, I took over in September 2019 and sort of rather like Paperwhite and Kindle coming and knocking me sideways when I got to Waterstones. Uh, COVID came along and knocked me sideways when I got to Barnes & Noble. Um, but the owners supported um, when we were forced to close all the shops, um, keeping everybody, um, all, all the uh, full-time booksellers and experienced booksellers employed in the shops, we kept the lights on and we got to work in, in our shuttered shops, which in retrospect was an obvious thing to do, but at the time was quite brave because nobody knew when it was going to end. Um, and it was obviously very expensive to keep on uh, paying people when every other store was shuttered and, and people were furloughed.
1: We're coming towards the end of our time, so I wanted to ask, A, what it is that you like reading yourself, and B, just how much stuff you're reading every year?
2: I read reasonably eclectically. I always read a lot of fiction because, frankly, that pays the bills, and identifying really good and exciting fiction is is important. But I also read always some form of non-fiction, generally something serious, um, and I... If there are great reviews that catch my eye, I always read those. Um, And if uh, editors that I respect um, or or agents, suggest a particular book, I'll always try and read it. I've just finished or about 10 pages away from finishing uh, a fantastic book, which hasn't come out in the UK I think yet, called um, "Monsters" by Claire Dederer which is essays. Well, it's it's an examination of of why sort of so much creative genius is attached to the most despicable people, um, and how, to what degree do their uh, actions and personalities uh, stain or inform our own viewing of the art that they create, be it you know Picasso's paintings or um, or, or in the movies, or, or indeed so many writers who are um, spurned. Uh, but underneath, it's also is a, is a brilliant uh, and very, very, very funny uh, examination of our own motivations, and it's a it's it's a powerful feminist book as well. Um, so I read those kind of books, and then I read wonderful fiction.
0: I'd to ask you your view on some of the broader economics of the publishing industry. So we, we talk to a lot of writers on the podcast and, and as Rachel alluded to, we always ask about money and how they've they've made it work as writers, and it's it's often very challenging. And what are your views on the the fraction of the, the purchase price both at at the uh, waterstones or, or more generally in the book trade that then works its way back to authors themselves
2: it's sort of again i suppose it's a bit bit the same in in acting in the movies and the less if if you're a successful author and you have a bestseller you really really get very very rich and and you know stupendous fortunes are made by the, the most successful authors um equally if you're midlist or or selling modestly um that it's it's difficult to earn a living. Um, if in some forms of, of really important and creative writing poetry, for example, um, it's impossible to, to earn a, a decent living. I think that's something that as booksellers, we're able to sort of slightly sort of step back and say, well, this is for publishers and authors uh, to decide between them with agents very much in the mix. Um, uh, uh, because we simply, we sell the book the price that the publisher sets. We don't set it. Um, we're not like in most retail trades where the retailer is sort of driving the whole place. Uh, we're, we're very much on receive. Um, we've always been you know, the, 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 quite far down the, 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 the chain, as indeed we are in status. I mean, it's a much higher status to be a publisher or an agent um, than it is to be a bookseller, precisely because we're not involved in that. Um, do I think there are difficulties around it Surely there are. Um, I was listening to, a, to an editor um, giving his retirement speech uh, not long ago, saying that he'd come full circle. I mean, really esteemed uh, author, uh, Asia, um, editor, saying that he was paying at the end of his career the same advances that he was paying at the start of his career, 40 years. Um, that, that's not right. Um, at the same time, of course, his publishers have prospered hugely and these, these, when I started bookselling, you'd go to meet a, a publisher and you'd go down, you know, to to the rather dingy parts of London, you go to the far end of Fulham, you go over to Clapham. Uh, nowadays, if you want to go and meet those same publishers, uh, you go uh, to one marble lined palace on the Thames or another marble palace on the Thames. It's, it's, uh, the publishers have done quite well in this world.
1: Well, on that sort of cheering note. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for your times, James, and wishing you all the best with all of your
0: ventures going forward. Thank you very much. That was the Always Take Notes interview with James Daunt. He's not on social media personally, but you can find Daunt Books, Waterstones and Barnes & Noble on all sorts of social media platforms. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your impression of the interview with James?
1: I thought it was excellent to have such um, a distinguished bookseller and uh, executive on the show. So obviously really enjoyed hearing about his approach at Daunt and then Wardstones and St. Barnes and Noble and and how it basically all boils down to giving people responsibility and trusting in them to understand their, their local market. Um, and I also really enjoyed the um, insight that Uh, and it sounds like an obvious one in hindsight that bookselling is an interconnected ecosystem you know if independents are struggling then the bigger chains will struggle and if American chains are struggling then British ones will as well so I thought that was that was fascinating how about
0: you? Yeah very similar kind of I thought it was fascinating and we'd never had a bookseller on the podcast before so we've I suppose we've set the bar quite high with that the thing that I found particularly interesting was yeah that kind of interconnected note and I think this was when we asked him about taking the barnes and noble job that he felt there was actually a moment where bricks and mortar like um physical bookshops, could just cease to exist as a as a thing um that it could have entirely gone online and obviously i don't think that would have been a good thing in any form i also thought it was interesting how he said he, he just doesn't use any data that it's all done on kind of intuition and and those kind of things um but yeah clearly an example of the benefit of um Pushing responsibility as far as far down the the kind of corporate hierarchies as you can. Um, anyway, Rachel, what have you been up to, and what has your cultural diet been this week?
1: <laughs> well, recently I did the big piece on Barbie and Oppenheimer, which came out and very excitingly got a flash on the cover of the Economist. So you know, pursuing my pop culture agenda, I've also written a piece on the growth of rose wine for our food column, um, and I'm working on a couple of other book reviews and. Uh, similar things, hopefully, about Hollywood and the strikes as well. In terms of cultural diet, uh, what have I been reading? I've been reading a book club book called The Happiest Man in the World, which is about an Auschwitz survivor. Um, I haven't watched that much TV recently. I have been watching And Just Like That because that's my guilty pleasure, um, which is the Sex and sex, the spin spinoff.
0: I heard, I heard that And Just Like That had had recovered from its mediocre first season and was now back in the groove. I'm
1: not sure I'd go as far as back in the groove, but it's definitely... It's definitely um, a step forward, I would say. Anyway, what have you been watching and reading?
0: Uh, well, I read your Barbie and Oppenheimer piece, which I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was interesting that line that there had been like previous attempts to make films about sort of nuclear history in the 40s and 50s, and they hadn't, they hadn't really worked. So in terms of reading, I've been reading uh, the letters of Ella Maya, uh, this Swiss travel writer who I'm writing about my new book, which is fascinating, not least because she seems to kind of know everyone in Europe in the 30s from Somerset Maugham to Winston Churchill but also just the kind of sheer complexities of of communicating across long distances so lots of like working out who she'll send who and via who she'll send her letters and then in terms of TV and film I have seen both Barbie and um, Oppenheimer.
1: Which one did you do first?
0: Uh, I did Barbie first I was staying staying in Wales um, looking after a friend's dog and when they came back they had organized an outing to Barbie which I went to which was notable in the um, Abergavenny cinema that there was a, a large group of women who'd all come like in character in pink which i was i was impressed by
1: when i went to the press screening men and women were in pink um and it took really? 40 took 45 minutes to get into the cinema it was packed
0: you yeah. did mention that the, the barbie press screening was significantly better attended than the oppenheimer one.
1: Yes, although I think potentially that might be A, because the Oppenheimer one was at nine in the morning and B, I think they had multiple Oppenheimer screenings um, versus see. potentially one Barbie, but I'm not sure. So i I trying not to read too much into the press screening dynamics.
0: I, um, but, I, this yes. is a spoiler alert, but I, I particularly enjoyed the um, the joke right at the end of Barbie, which mm. um, I didn't see coming, but I thought it was quite, was quite punchy for anyone who's seen that. Uh, and then I did see, I saw Oppenheimer on... Um, on an IMAX print in Leicester Square, which was kind of a, which was kind of amazing actually. Like to, glad to have seen it on a on a big screen and everything like that. And then on TV, I have been watching um, another French series called Les Combattants, which is. Um, Called Women of War on Netflix, and it's about uh, four women at the beginning of the First World War, and it's actually uh, better than I thought it would be. So I would I would recommend that. Anyway, uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken. and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic designer is by James Edgar.
1: If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter. Slash X. Should we be calling it X now? I don't know. I don't um, know. Yeah, maybe. At Take Notes always on Instagram at Always Take Notes. You can support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our
0: website, please do. Many thanks. Bye bye.